is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this week's podcast, the second part of our trip behind the scenes at the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. Richard West and I mark the fact that this episode was recorded ahead of what should have been Le Mans weekend, plus all your technical questions answered. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you're keeping well and enjoying midsummer, which is what it actually is. I know it doesn't feel like it here either, but we have reached a major milestone with this podcast series. This is our 10th episode. It's amazing. We've had loads of you send technical questions in recently, so all of those will be answered shortly. Plus, we have a new member of the expert technical panel to introduce to you as well this week. More on that in just a moment. First, I wanted to remind you that the Virtual Jaguar Festival continues and lots of you have uploaded pictures of your pride and joy over the past few weeks. There are all sorts of amazing Jaguars with your stories up there. Just go and have a look at it. Click on the Virtual Festival link at the top of the podcast website and you can access it all there at jcpodcast.com. And it's not over yet because in a couple of weeks' time, our Virtual Concours d'Elegance will go live and it will be your turn to vote for your favourite. It's all to come as part of the Virtual Summer Jaguar Festival via jcpodcast.com. Also, a note to you if you haven't yet joined the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Unlike so many podcasts out there, we're not crowdfunded. We don't have any kind of donation website to keep us going. We're not plugging products at you all the time or any of that stuff. All that we ask of you is that you join the growing worldwide family of Jaguar Enthusiasts by signing up now. And in return, not only do you support this podcast, but you also receive a free monthly magazine access to our club insurance partners and literally hundreds of pounds worth of membership benefits and discounts so join us now very easy to do just click the join us button at jcpodcast.com follow the steps and you'll be part of this fantastic worldwide global family memories of motorsports richard remembers on the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast well this week on the jaguar enthusiast club podcast I thought we'd take a little bit of a moment to do Richard Remembers, our usual segment with Richard West, a little bit differently in recognition of the fact that as I sit here now on Wednesday the 10th of June 2020, it's very strange because where I should be is the media centre above the pit lane at Le Mans. Of course, it should be the world's greatest motor race this weekend, the 24 hours of Le Mans. And it's a race that has been running since 1923, and this year was going to be a very big turning point in the history of that race. Richard, you must have a huge number of memories of the Le Mans 24 hours over the years, uh, both from your days in TWR, but also from being just a plain motorsport fan. Wednesday before the weekend of the race, the energy is starting to build. Tonight would have been qualifying, wouldn't it? It would indeed, Wayne. And I think you're right. You know, there's, there's probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people missing the fact that they're not there with you because it's such an amazing event. You know yourself. You actually, from a team perspective, I remember when I first went there in, in 89 with TWR, you literally, we arrived on the previous Sunday. So you actually get there on that Sunday. You can see people starting to, the equipment is there. Things are being set up in the pits. The hospitality areas are all going together, the feeding areas. And it just completely sucks you in. It's just the most amazing experience. And then, of course, before you know it, you're actually into it, you know, and everything is set up. Martin Brundle said in one of his interviews recently, I think, about 135 people we were in the TWR Jaguar days. And you're all there and you're just focused on this amazing thing. So you're actually starting to work very, very hard in the days that run up to it. And the night practices, again, they take you right the way through. You don't see bed till one o'clock in the morning. But it's just such an exhilarating experience. I've got to be honest, until it's all over, you don't feel tired at all. Well, of course, it's big enough that those cars race for 24 hours and the teams run through the night doing that, that race. But as you say, there is a whole program of events that leads up to race weekend itself and as you say you would have arrived on sunday sunday traditionally is always when the city center in le mans usually gets really busy and packed with people coming out to watch scrutineering and quite a unique race really because scrutineering is done in the city center down the road isn't it 
It is indeed. And in fact, when I say arrive Sunday, I'm talking from a personal perspective. I mean, our truck drivers in the TWR days were headed up by a great guy called Keith Partridge. Keith was at the Blenheim Revival um, last year, you know, looking as well as ever, a bit like me, a bit more rounded than he used to be. <laughs> but um, he would arrive probably four or five days before that and get everything in place because you're right. You go down into, into the centre and it was just packed with people and everybody is just so enthusiastic. You get some really, really amazing people. I always remember going down there one evening and there was a chap with an MGB um, soft top. And when he opened up the boot, he had a fold out picnic table, but it wasn't just sort of hinged in there in any old way. It was magnificently made and the picnic table was all folded out and he was sat there with his wife or I assume his wife, um, you know, with a glass of champagne and some canapes watching it all going on. And it's just that amazing sensation of when you go there. I don't think I have ever met anybody in or around Le Mans during that period, during leading up to and even the scrutineering, who isn't immensely passionate about sports car racing. And it was always such a pleasure to be there with those people. Wednesday is a very important day because it would have been the first round of qualifying. And of course, mm. this is the first time that they, the drivers really get to test the cars. They drive at night for the first time around Le Mans. They will have done several stints of free practice and day testing so far as well. But this is mm. when the team really starts to come together and you realise what your package is going ahead into the weekend, don't you? It is. And the feeling within the team changes um in that build-up we were just talking about to the scrutineering up until that point it, it, it's all very wow we're back at Le Mans isn't this fantastic you know Tom used to take us and all the boys the whole team we'd all go out and invade various restaurants you know and Tom would settle the bill everyone would have a nice dinner but once you get to that first session the mood within the team changes and it suddenly becomes much more serious um and I don't mean prior to that, it hasn't been professional or serious, but there's almost a carnival atmosphere. Once you get into that first practice session, as you've just described it, that qualifying session, you really, really do start to see people change. The intensity of the team changes. Clearly, the drivers become much, much more focused. And then all of the showmanship goes on around you. And from a promotional guy's perspective, you're entertaining. You've got sponsors arriving and their representatives and their guests. But at the same time, you, you palpably feel a change in energy within the garage and the pits and the workshop areas. And that, that's electrifying because you actually realise we're now on countdown. This is serious now. It gets serious, especially when the team starts to realise how the car is running and how some of the drivers are performing. After tonight's session, that would have started to become clear. And I've been around teams, I'm sure you have as well, where things have not gone to plan on that first night of qualifying and especially mm. if a team has had an off and the car is damaged and now on top of having to get the car set up right and all the data right and get set for the weekend ahead they've now got to mm. rebuild the thing as well it can be a real balance at this point in the race can't it it can indeed and there's always that psychological thing if the car's taken a bit of a bash you know and it gets rebuilt the guys and the girls that do that job are always absolutely fantastic they always give give over 100% if that's possible in getting the car back to where it should be. But psychologically, and I've seen it in the past in both sports car racing and in Formula One and indeed in rallying many years ago, once a car's actually had a bit of a biff, the driver just is just that little bit slightly off, you know, in terms of their confidence factor. They're not doubting the job that's been done, but, you know, there's always that thing of, well, the car doesn't quite feel the same. Well, actually materially the car is the same and then of course there's that big effort from everybody within the team within the drivers to actually say listen you know everything's been done you're absolutely fine get back in give it your all and it takes a while to settle the driver back in to really really having the confidence factor they felt before that particular incident whatever that was it can be minor it can be a major rebuild so again the confidence within the team and the way that the driver's see the team reacting is very very important during those critical hours of qualifying and practice 
So for those of you who have not enjoyed a fantastic week at uh, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, the programme generally goes from this point onwards that Wednesday evening is first round of practice and qualifying. Thursday would see the second round of qualifying. Of course, they must set a fastest time in the day and in the night, and all of the drivers must also set a time in order to qualify for the race start on Saturday. And then Friday is a very different day because I'm guessing from a team's point of view at that point, you do kind of just break out of the focus, allow yourself to come out of it for just a moment, because, of course, Friday is the big driver's parade in town, isn't it? Absolutely. It's just, it's an amazing feeling, Wayne. You know, you get there, the streets are completely packed, every restaurant, every bar, every area, you know, is built, or it was, you know, prior to the situations we all find ourselves in now, hence why we're talking about this. And it's just a carnival atmosphere because people stop, they want autographs, they want to see people, they want to touch, they want to talk about the race. There's people who've been going for decades to, you know, watch the Le Mans 24-hour race. And some of them have fantastic memories. And I remember saying once to Andy King, you know, my number two at TWR, do you know, isn't it a shame we haven't actually got the time and a tape recorder to stop and talk to some of these guys because uh, and, and their wives or partners or whatever because... I stopped and talked to a guy and he said to me, oh, you know, we're so glad to see the Jaguar team here. And I said, you know, when have you been coming? He said, my first Le Mans was the year when the big accident happened and I've not missed one since. And you think to yourself, my God, you know, what a fantastic guy to interview because they have all these memories and it's all that stuff. You soak it up from a team's perspective. You're feeling good. Your results, you know, if you've practiced and you've qualified well and everything's gone according to plan. It's just an amazing experience. And it's like nothing else in motor racing. You know, I've won world championships with McLaren and with Williams. I've worked, as you know, with some of the greatest drivers in the, in the latter day, 80, 90, early 2000s of the sport in Formula One. You don't, you don't get what you get from being at Le Mans. It is a totally unique experience. With your experience of being close to the drivers at that point during the week, do different drivers react differently to that kind of circus that happens on the Friday? And, and for those who, who might not know, the track is closed. There is no motorsport. And no. on Friday, it is the day when all the tourists hit the Mulsanne straight and drive up and down. There are car shows being held up and down the circuit yeah. at various different points. I guess for a driver, it can be quite difficult, having been in the focus of having to qualify, to then have that sort of almost like a day off. And, I mean, we must mention the fact that the mechanics are not having a day off. They're in the pit lane practicing um, pit stops usually by this point. But for, for, the, for the drivers, it's almost like they have to snap themselves out of it for just a moment. And for you as managing all of their, their interviews and their sort of media commitments, do different drivers react to that in different ways? Yeah, I think in the main, looking back, certainly, and in fact, I was at Le Mans again um, in a professional capacity in 2007 in, in GT3 with a Ferrari, of all things. And the same thing, you see these these guys, very professional. But I think, actually, it, it's a welcome day off because, truthfully, they enjoy it. They enjoy the, <coughs> excuse me, the media attention. You know, there's lots of people around, lots of pretty people, lots of good-looking guys, good-looking women. The whole thing is just very relaxing, and it enables them to take a breather. I don't think for any driver I've ever worked with in that, in that era, anybody ever just shut off from what was about to come. But it was a welcome relief. And when you look at some of the great photographs of people in those parades and things, you generally see the drivers happy, smiling, and very relaxed. And I think after what had gone before in the week prior to the event, it comes as actually quite a welcome respite from the pressures of what you know is about to come around the corner on Saturday. That is like a pressure cooker of tension, isn't it? Uh, starting <laughs> from very early in the morning uh, on Saturday up until the race start at uh, three or four o'clock, depending on the year, really. But um, tell us from a team's perspective how that Saturday morning plays out up until that point where they're all lined up on the grid, ready to do the outlap. I think, as Martin Brundle said in part two of that recent interview we did with him, it, it's a very, very long weekend because, in actual fact, the alarm goes off at five o'clock on Saturday morning. You know, the team are... I, some people sleep really well the night before. Other people don't, you know. From a PR perspective, you don't because the night before you tend to be out entertaining, so you probably haven't hit the sack till about 11, 11.30. The alarm goes off at five everything is ready to go. I mean, and I've always had this in my racing life, you know, you have everything packed, you have all your bags ready to go. 
you have all of your paperwork ready, the motorhomes, the press centers are all ready. So really, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes later, you're actually on track and in the paddock. And from that moment on, as you say, is the pressure cooker because it's a wonderful feeling because, you know, it's hopefully if it's a nice weekend, the weather's getting, you know, brighter, the sun's up, you know, it's a fantastic midsummer event. You feel like you're ready to go. If you've hopefully as the team, you've had a good, you know, good qualifying and everything's gone well and the cars are ready. It literally then the atmosphere builds and builds and builds and builds. But of course, you know, you're not going anywhere for another nine hours. That's the amazing 10 hours. You, you are literally in, in the zone already. And walking into the garage is always, or the garages is always fascinating because with all teams, top teams or otherwise, the checking and the rechecking is going on. The tire guys are busy. The engine people are in there. You've got sponsors already arriving with guests. You've got drivers, you know, people are pressing for last minute interviews. And it just builds to a crescendo, of course, when, you know, you get towards that point when you suddenly look out there and you think, hey, it's half an hour to go. You know, is everything done? But the team never, and you made a great point earlier. You said, you know, even though we're downtown and we're having that Friday off, the mechanics are working. By now, the guys are absolutely full on. You know, they are literally checking, rechecking, checking, rechecking, and it just doesn't stop. And it's, it's quite exhausting. You know, you get towards that point when you think, right, we're about to start this momentous event. And you think, blimey, you know, I've done a day's work already. <laughs> well, of course, this year would have been a very momentous year for the sport and for the Le Mans 24 hours because this was the last year, supposed to be, of LMP1 and the current structure of cars mm. within the World Endurance Championship. Hypercars was due to arrive next year. So, yeah, a big turning point, a big sort of watershed moment for the sport. Do you think that was a good move? What are your feelings on that? And what do you think of hypercars and what they might be able to bring us going forward? I think what's happened in the last 12 weeks or so maybe is going to have an impact in many, many ways on the future of the sport anyway, because I think it one, one of the things that it's really made people aware of is just how fragile sometimes consumer society can be. It's made an enormous difference. I've been reading some quite a lot of material and listened to some very good interviews with a number of very influential people in, in business and commerce. And I think not only has motorsport obviously faced a lot of pressures and a lot of changes during this time i think the consumer's view of where we sit with motor racing is going to change as well and if anything it's going to accelerate i believe this is just my personal view it's going to accelerate the need for the emerging technologies because quite clearly as you say this would have been a momentous year with the end you know the end of the last time we would have seen lmp1 as it was the hypercar type era and all those things that we're talking about, I think is absolutely fascinating. But I think there's going to have to be a big intake of breath and say, right, what does is, what is the world generally want to see motorsport as coming out the other side? And I think that may well drive some of the formulas and changes as we see them in the future. Because quite simply, we're not, we're not where we were three months ago. And I think, quite frankly, many, many things are going to have to change to take account of that and views on a greener society and a better society. So I think actually it presents an amazing opportunity for motorsport to actually say, right, what do we want? What's it going to look like? And how are we going to engineer that for the future? Well, whatever that future may bring, let's just hope that we still get to have that amazing moment where the rolling start mm -hmm. unleashes all of those cars onto the 24 hours of Le Mans. Let's hope we still get to enjoy the pit lane at night and the Mulsanne Strait and the early parts of the morning at Arnage in Indianapolis, and all of the emotion that we have associated with that race, and the sport in general, and all of the things that have made us so passionate about it over the years remain, no matter what the future may bring. Uh, Richard, it's been great reminiscing about Le Mans with you, and hopefully we might get allowed to go and see the race in September at the postponement dates, or indeed return there as normal in 2021. Yeah, I do hope so, Wayne, because it truly is, for, for listeners who've never been, I can't recommend a trip to Le Mans highly enough. My own eldest son did five consecutive Le Mans in recent years, and he said, Dad, you know, we've really got to get the XJR 100 out and sticker it up and go back. And I said, well, maybe a couple of years from now, 35th anniversary, you know, maybe we go back and do it. It just doesn't seem that long ago, Wayne. That's the trouble. <laughs> <laughs> You're 
listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Sharing the passion, sharing the knowledge. All your questions answered with the Jaguar model experts. More of your technical questions answered now on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. And Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar is back with us once again. And things must be quite busy in your workshop at the moment, Tom. Yeah, so we've finally gone back to um, some sort of normality with what's going on. So we've got all of the staff back now um, with sort of social distancing in place. So we're just really trying to catch up with the the kind of backlog we've got here. Um, And we have finally had some news that looks like we're potentially going racing in July as well. So um, we've got to try and schedule in some of the cars for the workshops to get them ready. Absolutely. Exciting to see motorsport returning, albeit without spectators, but at least uh, those who want to go racing can get behind the wheel. I don't know how you social distance in a workshop when you're working on cars. It must look like some kind of mad dance going on. Down yeah, at, down that's, that's it. There's, there's sort of spaces in between the work bays, etc. And um, it is doable. Um, it just comes a little bit awkward when there's um, sort of gearbox jobs or anything like that um, with sort of a heavy equipment. That does prove a little bit more difficult, but we, we are managing we are managing well let's see if we can manage to answer some of these questions from the jaguar enthusiast club podcast listeners and we start with gareth thomas who asks i have an x350 xjr it's a us spec car with an october 2003 build date so quite an early car neither the tachometer or the cruise control are working properly and this is what happens about a minute after starting the car a message pops up saying cruise not available along with a little yellow light. The tachometer is a little bit more variable at startup. Sometimes it works properly for a few minutes, but never more than 20 minutes. Sometimes it just stays at zero, regardless of how Gareth drives. Here's a hunch that the cruise control fault may be related to the tachometer's inconsistency, but he might be wrong. But what he does know is he loves the podcast, which is excellent. So can we help him, Tom? Uh, it's good news that he's enjoying the podcast, um, but yeah, of course we can. So um, first things first, um, it is quite an unusual issue that he's described there, but I would sort of probably be pointing towards the actual instrument pack itself. Now, interestingly, you mentioned it is a US model. Now, normally with these, they often have the the actual face of the Speedo change from kilometers to miles per hour. So we import quite a lot of vehicles um, from Japan, and we usually have to replace the instrument pack face um, from uh, to a miles per hour conversion. Now, unfortunately, when you do this, you have to strip the dash pack down, and you do have to be extremely careful doing this, as you actually have to remove the needles from the motors, and it's really easy to cause a similar issue. So that might just be a coincidence, but that is one thing that we have experienced here. Now, um, if this isn't the case, and it has still got the original dash pack, etc., and this hasn't been carried out um, we would then need to probably carry out some basic checks with the diagnostics unfortunately we can actually power these up individually and see which part of the instrument pack is working to eradicate whether it's actually the wiring to the instrument pack or the instrument pack itself now the instrument pack is the is part of the can network on these cars so when these are disconnected they don't start so I'd recommend that side to go to a specialist or um, the actual JAG dealer to look into this. Um, Now, the cruise control side of things, I'd say that's probably separate to your dash pack issue. Um, If this vehicle has got adaptive cruise control fitted, a really common issue is actually the cruise control module itself at fault, which is at the front of the car. And this is notorious for causing this intermittent um, cruise not available on the dash. Now, if that isn't fitted, I'm afraid it, it goes back to saying we would need to run a little bit of diagnostics um, see what codes are stored. It could be something simple as a wheel speed sensor or something along those lines. But normally you do have other codes to indicate that. But once we've given it a scan, we can see exactly what fault codes are in there and advise accordingly. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Tom. And uh, great to have all of your input as normal. And also a big thanks to David Marks, who's uh, helped us with some of those questions. And you'll be itching to get out on the racetrack soon, won't you? Yeah, absolutely, Wayne. I, to be honest with you, I, I can't wait. Um, obviously, we can... Um, as you've mentioned earlier, there's no spectators and we are limited on um, mechanics, etc. to go, but it looks like it's going to be driver and a mechanic allowed at the circuits. 
Um, so hopefully we can get some some testing and some track days before the race, but hopefully end of July it'll all go ahead, providing there's no other issues with COVID. Well, thanks for that, Tom, and all the best on the race circuit. Thanks again for answering those questions, and more questions yet to come, because we're looking at some older Jaguars now, some of the more classic models, and we welcome a brand new member of the expert panel onto the podcast. Hello, Andy Waters. Welcome. Hello, Wayne. So you are CBR Classic Restorations. You're based in Walsall. Tell us a little bit about the business, first of all. Okay, we've uh, we've been operating now for some 20-odd years and uh, built the business solely on its reputation and uh, tried to make sure that we built it on standards, attention to detail, and the uh, fact that you make sure what the customers throw good money at sticks, that they're getting exactly what they're paying for. Well, it's brilliant to have you along here on the expert panel, uh, helping all of our Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast listeners with your area of expertise, which is uh, restorations of very old, very beautiful, in fact, stunningly gorgeous Jaguars. So let's see if we can help some of our listeners this week. And uh, we start with a question from Chris Benham, who asks, how are the bulbs accessed in the rear interior C-pillars of the Jaguar Mark 8? They're a little bit fiddly. Uh, it's a delicate thing uh, because of the age of the plastics, etc., on the lens. But if, uh, if you sort of look carefully at the recess of the light below the uh, clear lens there is a very small crown spring clip. If you apply a very small amount of press pre pressure downwards on, on that with a very, very small screwdriver stroke pick uh, and apply light pressure to the lens pulling away, you will remove it so as you can get to the festoon bulb. But it's going to be 65 years old and it's going to be brittle. So it's one of those things you have to psych yourself up for, no doubt. Yes, it's certainly <laughs> not a bullet-a-gate approach. No. Uh, it really is a delicate, uh, delicate operation. Well, hopefully that's given Chris the bravery he needs to tackle that one as we move on to an E-Type now. And this question from Bill, who's got a Series 1 1967 E-Type. And he says, I'm having problems in getting the window glass to fit in the hood rubber seals when it's closed. I can't seem to find a happy compromise. I'm able to get the glass to fit nicely in one place, only to find it doesn't fit properly in another. Does the glass rise into the rubber seal or onto its edges? I'd be grateful if anyone could send me photos of how or where the door window glass fits to the hood cantrail rubber or any procedures to adjusting the hood to the window glass. The hood frame is original and the windscreen is original and neither of them have ever been off the car. I reckon we can help him here. Andy, what do you think? I'd certainly like to say so. And... Uh it, it is one of the trickiest jobs. I mean, E-types are sort of intense and tricky anyway. And uh, they, they, you know, they look quite a simplified car, but they certainly are not. Everything is sort of a fiddle to get it to work. Um, the rubbers on the cantrail, etc., is like a two-step rubber and the glass should just took into the edge of the uh, the one layer the sort of external edge of that one layer up against the second radius so it does fit into it um, the thing with them is especially if it's sort of been restored i know he's saying that it's never been off the car but there there are shims for the cantrails to be adjusted outwards, inwards, every which way, even up and down, you can move them. You would normally have the roof off, not the frame, the roof itself off, to set the whole framework with the glass before the roof was applied to it. The uh, But you can get in and adjust everything again down in the bottom of the doors there is adjustment to crank the window in or out 
and again the there is a stop screw as he's probably aware on the window runner so that the glass only goes up a certain height the other problem you have is they're obviously aftermarket rubbers that are made now they're slightly different uh, sort of composite and sometimes you do end up trying to trim a little bit off here and there off the back face so that you don't alter the face that you see and this will uh, this will allow the rubber to sit at a slightly different thickness at different areas uh, the there are as it says google is out there for sort of items to hopefully see some videos of some of these operations and uh, we can if it's okay say that if he wants to go to a youtube channel that we've got which is cbr classics youtube uh if he looks at the series one drophead convertible uh with the water leaks he'll see that i explain hopefully as much as i can in the short videos there's about four of them and the one will explain about the shimming and adjusting of the windows and the rubbers but uh hopefully that's a bit, a bit of help for him that's brilliant and we'll put the link to that video in the description part on the podcast page at jcpodcast.com so uh, you can easily find it there click on that link and that'll open that youtube video that andy has created to solve just that problem uh, thanks andy and where can we find out more about your business online so we can find out all about you okay um we uh, obviously website out there which is www.cbrclassicrestorations.co.uk we'd like to say that that gives a very good insight into our business and uh, again it gives all the contact details that uh, if we can be of help yeah we will certainly share some knowledge great stuff and of course you can ask your questions of this podcast very very easily just go to jcpodcast.com click on the contact page there and you can either use the contact form or of course you can use our voice message recorder there and we can get you on the podcast we hope to hear from you with more of your questions next week but for now andy thanks very much thank you you're listening to the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast join the jaguar enthusiasts club now at jec.org.uk In this, the second part of my conversation with Tony Merigold from the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust, Tony takes us behind the scenes and explains how the collection's cars are kept well-maintained and ready for the road. Plus, we ask him in a quick-fire round all of your questions. But first I asked him, just how does the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust keep on top of all the maintenance required on all of those special cars? Right, I've already mentioned that the, the Trust is seven employees and that's that the Trust pays for. We actually have two technicians and back to working with uh, Jaguar Classic, those technicians are provided to us by Jaguar Classic. So they get their pay and rations by the company, but they're technically seconded to us. They work in the workshops at Gaydon. We've got three ramps and we've got about 20 volunteers who help us out. Uh, I think there's uh, four or five volunteers who work in the archive and the rest work in the workshops. So with that combination of those two technicians and a, a rotor of the volunteers, then yes, we will prep cars, whether it's just doing basic prep for MOTs or whether it's major stuff. We, we schedule as much as we can through the museums and we, we try and keep on our planned stuff as much as we can. Uh, sadly, as you'll know from working on cars, I'm, I'm sure there's some mathematical law of working on a car, but it always takes you four times as long and costs you 10 times as much as you first thought or whatever. And working on our cars is no different. So obviously we're here talking as the uh, pandemic is slightly easing here in the UK and the restrictions are starting to be lifted, but this must have had a big impact for you and your plans going forward. So what were you doing and planning for the future before lockdown came and and, and how are you going to pick that up in the future? Yes, yeah, certainly the big thing, we we've genuinely lost about three months workshop time which we will never get back um, and yeah we're going to have to work around that a couple of big things were going through the workshop and uh, and are there not quite finished at the moment 
on last year's London to Brighton and 1901 Lanchester ran out of oil and um, came to a grinding halt. So we've had to dismantle that engine. We're having some work done on that. We're having some new crankshafts made for that. Uh, so obviously that work's all gone behind. And we don't yet know if this year's London to Brighton is going to take place. It's probably the first weekend of November. But basically, that car just isn't going to be ready. So, you know, our plan would have been to got it ready for this year. So that isn't happening. One of the other things that going through the workshop, we are, we've already mentioned both of the E-types. We've got the first and the last. But of course, 2021 is the 60th anniversary of the launch of the E-type in Geneva. So, so the Trust is planning a tour in March to go to Geneva. And we're, we are planning to drive the 77RW, the first, and HDU555N, the last, all the way to Geneva. So the Series 3 E-Type's been going through the workshop. Um, we had to do quite a lot of work on the back end. The wheel bearings had gone. And then you start looking at it, oh, well, two of the shock absorbers are a bit iffy, so we'll replace all four. And then you need to do all the suspension bushes. Um, and then we need, to, and then the steering rack's leaking, so we've had to do that. So that's now back together. And all we had to do was reset the camber and send it for the MOT, and then lockdown came in. So the first job when our guys get back will be to uh, uh, finish finish off the work on HDU. But then we're going to have to start the work, start the check over on 77RW. Because um, that car's had a fair amount of use since it was recommissioned, um, it needs a bit of work. The engine's getting a little bit noisy. We think it's all just top end, so we're probably going to have to do the head and the timing chains on that. If we were just pottering around doing 100 miles a year, it will probably go on for ages. But I can't take that risk if I'm going to drive it 1,000 miles to Geneva. So, so, yeah, when we go back, first on our priority is to fix both E-types ready for for the tour, uh, we will crack on with the Lanchester as quickly as we can. Um, and the other project that we are working on at the moment, you'll be familiar with our famous XK120, number 120, which is the one that the Apple Yards rallied in the 1950s. Um, the, the engine on that car was swapped out a few years ago. It was used for a Mila Mila and um, it was run with a spare engine and that engine's been in it for a couple of years. This year, we'd already started the work of dismantling it to put the original engine back in the car. So the original engine was rebuilt a few years ago, and that's all ready to go. We just started the work on that. So NUB 120 is in bits. So, yeah, we've got to get NUB 120 back together with its genuine engine back in. But, of course, while we've got the engine out, well, I might as well check the cooling system because that radiator's had a better use, so I'm probably going to have to get that refurbed. And, well, we might as well do all the suspension and steering bushes at the same time while we've got access to the front. So, so yeah, these things always take a lot longer than you think of. Well, it's a story that most Jaguar owners will be familiar with. You start with one small job and it gets very, very big very quickly. So on, there'll be a lot of people listening to this nodding in agreement with that. And, of course, as you mentioned, a really big year next year, 2021. And we'll, of course, uh, be having a really big celebration for the 60th anniversary of the E-Type at the Summer Jaguar Festival at Blenheim Palace in uh, May next year. And uh, we'll be seeing a lot of those cars from the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Collection there as well so looking forward to that also of course next year the anniversary of the first C-Type win at Le Mans which is an important anniversary not to be forgotten uh, uh, no uh, no, in indeed and, and as much of well I never really got to talk too much about my own cars I mean I do own an E-Type and I'm now on my third E-Type um, having started with a cheap one a 2 plus 2 I went to a 2 plus 2 a coupe and I've now got a Roadster but I've always loved the look of C-Type. So I must admit, about 18 months ago, I bought, I treated myself to a C-Type replica. I can't afford a real one. So I've got a C-Type replica, um, which I use as much as I can now, albeit again, lockdown has restricted that somewhat. Uh, but yes, I'm a firm favourite of the C-Type. And of course, one of the main things about that is it won Le Mans first time out. Astounding for the car company. Win on Sunday, sell cars on Monday. Yeah. And yeah, that's where the whole racing thing really kicked off at Le Mans. Yeah, incredibly special and uh, uh, iconic cars that, uh, without which, 
if they hadn't had those successes, of course, the E-Type would never have come uh, to fruition in the way that it did. Our podcast listeners here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast have asked me to give you some quick-fire fun questions, Tony. So I, I shall fire these at you quickly and uh, see how we go. So we'll finish off with just uh, recapping on some of the things people can expect from the Jaguar Damon Heritage Trust when they go and visit you and some of the services that you offer to Jaguar owners. But our listeners' quickfire questions. What in the collection Tony Merigold is the most valuable well a bit like royalty one never discusses money but certainly the most valuable one i think has to be the xj13 there is there is only one it's historically important so yeah i would say the xj13 is the most valuable what is the most surprising the most surprising for me personally because i've been fortunate enough to drive it is actually the group 44 e-type so it's a v12 series 3 e-type um, clearly it's not road legal, but we're fortunate that uh, the powers that be in Coventry allow uh, the roads to be closed once a year for Coventry Motorfest. And I've driven that round the track at Motorfest. It's a phenomenal car. Obviously, it's a full-blown race car. It's incredibly quick, but it is so easy to drive. It's just an E-type. Um, road holding is absolutely phenomenal. Brakes are brilliant. And I, would, I thought it was going to be hard work to drive, but it's, the steering's very light. So it's got to be, you know, in terms of cars you would think would be difficult, it's got to be about the easiest of our collection that I've ever driven. Well, Bob Tullius would argue that's because that's how he set it up, I'm sure. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Maybe we'll get him on the podcast soon. Uh, next, the most beautiful. That's a difficult one. So I'll tell you mine and then you tell me yours. I actually really like the Daimler Corsica convertible that was done for the 100th anniversary of the day obviously beauty is one of these subjective things but yeah i think i'd go for that one so what's your choice wayne my choice would be and uh, this might be quite a surprising one but it would probably be the ss1 that vintage look and the elegance that comes with that era of vehicle i think is the one for me and in fact one of the things when i'm showing people around uh, the cars, one of the things I like showing them on the SS1 is not just the XM, I open the door because mm. they've got this 1930s Art Deco door panel, the sort of sunburst Art Deco uh, woodwork on the door, which looks absolutely amazing. And people are just completely stunned when they see that. So, no, yeah, yeah, good choice, Wayne. I wouldn't argue mm. with that. Having said that, I think the SS100, the C-Type, the D-Type, <laughs> it's like trying to choose your children, isn't it, really? But, uh, yeah, difficult question. Uh, the most difficult to upkeep? Well, I think as we're finding out this year, at 1901, Lanchester's a challenge because this is long before anyone invented any standards. And it's twin-cylinder boxer engine. It's got two crankshafts. There is nothing on it that's standard or logical or whatever. And you can't go to Halfords or SNG Barrett's and buy bits for it. So, so that's proving a challenge. But actually, the other one that I think would be very difficult to um, keep up for your, yourself as a hobby owner, um, and one I've also driven it, but I wouldn't want to own it, and that's actually an XJ220. Fantastic car to drive. Doesn't like going slow because obviously it wasn't built to go slow. But it loves, you know, motorway speed. You can feel it just sit down on the road and so on. But tyres are £2,000 a corner. Um, you can't get your Sainsbury shopping in it. Um, or more importantly, a, a, a bag full of luggage to go touring for a week. Um, but potentially the most difficult thing on it is it uses a racing bag tank for its fuel tank. Now, anyone who knows about racing knows these have a limited life. And I think you're meant to change it every 10 years. To change the fuel tank, you have to remove the back end of the car, take the engine and transmission out and change the tank. This is not for the faint-hearted. So, yeah, in terms of difficult to upkeep, I think the 220 has got to be pretty high, high up there. Wow, amazing. Uh, you'll never look at one at a show ever again the same way <laughs> after knowing that. Okay, this is this is a difficult one. The car that best sums up Jaguar for you? Partly because it's my own personal love, but also I think it sums up Jaguar for a lot of people. I'm afraid it becomes the E-Type for that one. So that, that's a fairly easy one for me. 
the most interesting design. Well, while I understand what you say about early cars and SSs, I would go a lot more modern here, and I would pick the CX-75 for that one. Very good, yes. Technologically a milestone, and design-wise a milestone, I think. It was quite a departure for Jaguar, that design, yeah. But a good car for a baddie to have in a James Bond film, nonetheless. We like that. <laughs> uh, the most pivotal for its impact on the Jaguar brand. I can't just give you one on that. And that's because cars mean different things to the company. Um, it, again, I'm afraid the E-Type has to become one of those. Mm. Partly because of the, its look and its design and even uh, Enzo Ferrari saying it's the most beautiful car in its world. But that's very much a symbol of the 60s and affordability of the cars and the whole era. So in terms of the whole 60s and so on taking off and, and an iconic design, that's the case. Um, in terms of the history of the car, I think two of the most pivotal in the history are the XK120, because of course that's the car that launched the XK engine. Uh, because the Mark 7 wasn't going to be ready in time for the motor show. And that, of course, led on to different threads of evolution, the 120, 40 and 50, but also it led on to the XK120C, the C-type you mentioned, D-type and E-type. So in terms of the sports cars, it has to be the XK120. But actually, probably the most impact on the brand, and this may be a surprise to you, but the company as high profile as all of the sports cars have been, the company has always made its money from the saloon cars. That's always where, been where the bulk of the revenue, the bulk of the profit has been. So in terms of the saloon cars, in, uh, in terms of the importance of history, I'm afraid it has to be the XJ6 when it came out in 1968, which I think, uh, I think even Sir William regarded that as the pinnacle of his car design career. Uh, and the fact that I think I think have we just done eight or nine generations of it, and you and you can see Jaguar design now. Talk about the DNA of Jaguar. You can see the design that that flow of design through that. So yeah, I think probably the most important car in the history would be the XJ6. At the end of the day, you could argue the XJ6 has been Jaguar's 911 in the way that it's evolved very subtly throughout the generations. And then the most evocative race car. That's a difficult one. You've already made the point about the 51 C-Type. Um, certainly for me growing up in the 60s, it would be the D-Type with the fin on the back. And that whole fin, you know, epitomizes racing cars. Um, for a younger generation, um, I, th I guess in most of those probably go for the XJR9, so the, the Le Mans winning cars of the, late 80s and 90s yeah so yeah it really depends on when you grew up xjr9 would certainly be mine i can't look at that car without getting goosebumps i really can't it's just one of those and the livery and everything else and then if you see them out at an event like silverstone classic or uh, le mans classic the sound is just incredible so yeah one of the joys and privileges for me in this job is i get to drive a, a lot of these cars I already mentioned the group 44 i I've, I've driven our C-Type, our D-Type, uh, the SS100, um, the Group 44 E-Type. I really don't think my driving skills are up to taking out a full-blown <laughs> C race car. I don't think I will drive the XJR9. Well, you never know, Tony. You never know. Never say never. But yes, I take your point. Before I let you go, Tony, it's been fantastic talking through the collection with you and um, must uh, you know, just remind everyone that uh, very soon lockdown will be over and we can go and visit these fantastic cars and I urge you to do so because there is no other way of better understanding the story of Jaguar, the impact on the motoring world that it has had over the generations than having a wander around Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust at Gade. And it is a superb day out. Of course, you've got all of the rest of the museum just next door there as well that you can access as well so uh, fantastic to go and visit and of course tony you do also offer services to jaguar owners tell us a little bit more about those in particular the heritage certificates as well we are certifying the entries in the ledgers in the original build ledgers 
So what we're saying, and, and we call it a birth certificate, and it's a bit like you get a copy of your birth certificate. This is exactly what was written in the ledgers on the day it was built or the day you were born. So that's what a certificate is. And actually, even in lockdown, the, um, the people in the office are producing those. Uh, and uh, while a lot of other things aren't, the workshop isn't carrying on, we're still producing certificates in reasonable numbers during lockdown. A lot of people think a certificate, you always see cars advertised with a certificate. We are never actually certifying that that car you're standing next to or looking at or planning to buy is the car that left the factory. Because unless it's inspected and someone can prove that gearbox and that engine number is on that car, then, yeah, so we're certifying the information. We're not certifying the car. The other thing that we're getting more and more requests for uh, is um, paint codes. And now that's not just, you know, the name on the front of a tin of paint. Um, if someone wants a paint code because they want to restore their car back to its original colour, the paint code, this will be the exact paint mix that your car left the factory in. So it might be British racing green of a particular year. It will tell you it was a DuPont paint and whatever the number is. And it's a bit like if you go to uh, B&Q or home base and have some paint, some Dulux made up, you know, using that paint code, you can take that to your paint shop and they know exactly how much blue or green or whatever is in the paint. And they can mix the paint up to match the exact recipe that they were produced so a surprising number of people uh, order paint codes and, uh, and normally because they're having the car uh, resprayed. And because they're having them resprayed, when they order the paint code, believe it or not, they ask us to laminate it for them because they give it to the paint shop. And by the time it's been around the paint shop for three months, you know, they've just destroyed your piece of paper. So, so, but, so it may sound very odd, but we get through it. We provide a lot of laminated paint codes. But we also provide a lot of other information from the archives, uh, regularly, the clubs, magazines are always after historic images to illustrate articles. We get requests from film companies, PR companies for archive footage, archive pictures, but also actually to you to use our cars. I made the point about the D-type and the wing on the D-type. There was a film on TV, Impossible Engineering, where they do all sorts of obscure stuff. And they actually videoed our D-Type on the road being used. And the whole point was, this was the first car that used a fin for stability. And so, on. so, our, so our cars do get used uh, for, for filming as well. So yes, it's not just the collection. It's the whole artifacts, the archives and everything else. It's very much part of what we do and gets a lot of use. It's been a wonderful insight, Tony, into the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. And uh, thank you so much for your time to talk us through it and to share some of the stories behind the cars that we can expect to see when we go there. So, uh, Tony Merigold, thank you very much. Thanks, Wayne. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to get in touch and send us your questions via jecpodcast.com. Use the voice recorder on there preferably, or, of course, you can use the contact form as well. You can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club really easily online at jecpodcast.com. Just click the Join Us button to ensure that you get the latest copy of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine and access to literally hundreds of pounds worth of member discounts and benefits. Till our next podcast, see ya. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.